The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tuesday edition of PFTPM. Shereen Williams, Mike Florio here with you. Another busy day in the National Football League. Today is the day we do the... Week 5 rewatch, Vikings at Seahawks is something we'll do coming up. Plus, also, the Week 5 Awards MDS will be joining us. Good afternoon, Shereen. I'm just checking to make sure I'm still not green. I've been green and yellow the past couple of days. I haven't become a Packers fan. It's just something that's happened in the camera here. I may have to get a new camera, apparently. My camera doesn't like me, or it likes me green and or yellow. But you look uh, the color that you are supposed to be. Well, and I don't have a return, so I can't actually see you. I can only hear you. So you look fine to me. Well, that's good. Yeah. Not seeing me at all is my best. That's my best angle. Eyes closed. What's your best side? Close your eyes. That's it. All right. uh, Let's get right to it. Vikings fans have been closing their eyes on this season so far, and they may want to keep them closed this weekend. The winless Atlanta Falcons coming to town with the dreaded artificial bump from an interim head coach that could happen with Raheem Morris, the former defensive coordinator, now the head coach. The Vikings reportedly won't have Dalvin Cook in the lineup, an adductor strain, a groin strain. Adductor is a is just a fancy word for a groin muscle. We saw Dalvin Cook grab at that muscle on Sunday night in the third quarter of the eventual loss to the Seattle Seahawks. It was at a time when everything was going Minnesota's way, and it felt like the air went out of the balloon when that injury happened to Cook. And then I was stunned to see him back on the field for one snap. He was back on the field for the K.J. Wright, it must be the gloves interception in the third quarter, and he he was gone right after. You could tell he couldn't move. I don't know why they even put him back in the game. But he won't play this week. They have the bye in week seven, and then they go to Green Bay to play the Packers week eight. So hopefully for the Vikings, he'll be back by then. But Alexander Madison, other than the fact that he missed the gigantic hole that would have won the game, other than that, Alexander Madison looked pretty good. Yeah, and, you know, Dalvin Cook leads the league in rushing still, Mike, despite not playing the entire game. Um, But he's still over 100 yards better than Josh Jacobs. So he's the best running back in football. They'll miss him, but they won't miss him as much perhaps as other teams might miss their star running backs. Although, uh, you know, say that Christian McCaffrey, I don't know that Carolina has missed him all that much uh, the way they're playing right now. But Alexander Madison did look good aside from from the one play. And and that one play was obviously a huge play in that game. So he's got to be a little bit better. But we're going to see a lot of Alexander Madison and Mike Boone probably this week against the Falcons, who have the 12th best rushing defense in the league. So maybe it's a Kirk Cousins game this week. If you have Kirk Cousins on your fantasy team, maybe this is a week to play him. Yeah, and uh, this is definitely not a week to play Anthony Sherman, not that you would play a fullback anyway. I'm going to pivot here off script because we see the news that Anthony Sherman, the Chiefs fullback, has been placed on the COVID-19 reserve list. And look, this is... Um, this is potentially not because of a positive result. This is, according to Albert Breer of SI.com, because he was in close contact with someone who has been infected. But it's enough close contact to get him on the list. I mean, the Patriots had 20 people who were in sufficiently close contract, contact excuse me, with Cam Newton to have a second plane that took them to Kansas City last week. That wasn't enough to get them on the COVID-19 reserve list. Sherman in enough contact to be on the COVID-19 reserve list. He'll have to test negatively for a couple of days. I believe that's how it works. There are so many different protocols and rules. It's hard to keep them straight. And once you figure them out, you start forgetting them. But it's something to keep an eye on. This isn't the sign of an outbreak. This isn't related to the Jordan Tamu positive from a week and a half ago because Sherman would have already been positive by now if he'd been exposed to Taamu and there was some sort of an outbreak but it's something Shireen to keep an eye on in Kansas City yeah Mike there they had a league meeting today and we'll continue that tomorrow obviously not in person uh, but we were on a conference call with Roger Goodell and Alan Sills the chief medical officer for the NFL as well as Troy Vincent and they talked a lot about this and it sounds like they're getting tighter on that contact 
list that that if you have had contact and they're afraid that you've been around someone with COVID, they're going to take extra precautions now to keep you away from that person. So it was an interesting call and, and it expanded from there to a lot of different things, but they are trying their best for risk mitigation. They understand that testing isn't foolproof, that it, the virus is going to get into team facilities. They've just got to get it stopped so it doesn't spread. So that's what this sounds like it's related to. But let me tell you this, and I don't know anything about the specifics of Sherman's case, but unless he was in close contact with somebody on the Chiefs and the Chiefs already knew about the contact that Sherman had with that person, if Sherman just shows up and says, oh, by the way, my wife's got COVID-19 and they say you're on the list, how many guys are going to say that? You know, there's a lot of honor system that's going on here. Asymptomatic players can get back on the field a lot more quickly than symptomatic players. What if you have symptoms that aren't objectively noticeable. If your temperature isn't up, but you otherwise are feeling malaise or not right or fear that maybe you have it at a time when you have tested positive, are you going to come forward and say, hey, I'm symptomatic? Are you going to come forward and say, hey, my son, my daughter, my whoever that I live with has COVID-19? Are you going to volunteer that information if it means you're going to be put on that list? So that's one of the other donut holes in all of this. To the extent that the league is relying on players to be so honest and candid with their symptoms and exposures that it keeps them from doing their job. And I don't want to be overly cynical here, but we see it with concussions. We've seen it for 10 years. Guys who have concussion-like symptoms keep their mouths shut because they want to play. And I don't think it's, it's foolish to wonder whether or not somebody may just keep their mouth shut about potential symptoms or potential exposure because they feel fine or because they think that it's not an issue. It's no big deal. You know, they're part of the country that assumes this is all being overblown and overstated. And why are we letting it get in the way of the things we want to do? And also, Mike, they're going to say, well, a test should pick this up if I really have COVID. So I can't taste anything. So I can't smell anything. If I have COVID, the test is going to pick it up. The test doesn't pick it up, then I don't have COVID. So I do think there's a lot of that. I think that unless uh, the test shows that you have tested positive and it's obviously not a false positive, then I think that's the only thing they're going to have to to go on. I just don't think that people are going to self-report that, oh, I can't taste, I can't smell because they feel like they've been tested. They're tested Daily, and they've gone through these tests and they feel like the tests are negative. But they've got to be honest. If someone in their family, some family member, whatever, comes home with COVID, they've got to be honest about that. I mean, you go back to the Andre Whitworth example of that. They were fine. The nanny goes out to lunch with a friend. The nanny brings it to the house. All of a sudden, everybody in the house has it. Plus, they had been to visit Whitworth's parents and in-laws and everything else, and they got it. And one of them was hospitalized. The father-in-law was hospitalized and on and on and on so you have to be honest about these things you hope that players are honest in that way but I understand them if they have symptoms they feel like they're tested I'm going to apologize to Aaron who's producing today in the control room for skipping around but since we're talking COVID let's (laughs) skip ahead to the New England situation the Patriots haven't had Cam Newton since the Friday it would have been the 2nd of October that was the day that he submitted the sample that tested positive, and they found out about it on Saturday. After 10 days, even if you still test positive, if you are asymptomatic, and this is one of the areas where the honor system has to be relied upon and may not work, yeah, I feel fine. I don't have a fever. Oh, I can't taste or smell, and I'm positive, but I feel fine, so I want to go back and I want to work and I want to play, and if we're acting like everybody's got it anyway and we're wearing masks and social distancing, what's the issue? I could see the machinations in a player's brain to allow him to think that, but Newton, even if he's still testing positive, is in the clear. Stephon Gilmore getting closer to the point where 10 days go by if he's truly asymptomatic where he can come back. It's not all that hard to apply the protocols to these situations and figure out when they're able to come back. But, of course, Bill Belichick, the coach of the team, never likes to really tell anybody anything. Here he is talking earlier today about the timeline for getting Newton and Gilmore back in the fold. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the schedule is in terms of when when uh, those guys will do uh, the things they need to do. Again, some of that's... Um, you know, it has to be scheduled outside of the building and so forth. So I'll, I'll leave that to the medical department. I don't know exactly what their schedule is. 
You know, I just had a thought while we were watching that. If you're a bank teller and somebody walks, how do you know you're not being robbed if somebody walks up like that? I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is our new reality. Like everybody who potentially would be robbing a bank looks the same. How do you distinguish the bank robbers? But the bottom line is the Patriots on track to play this weekend against the Broncos. No new positives today. This is going to be a daily thing because the latest guy, Byron Cowart, who we found out, I believe it was on Sunday, that's what derailed the Monday night game, Broncos-Patriots. Incubation periods, who he may have been exposed to, they weren't in the facility for very long at all. And then we have that ever-present possibility of community spread that can cause guys to be positive, can cause the league to think that maybe there's an outbreak. And see, that, that look, as long as everyone goes home at night, there is a chance that positives are going to happen, and people are going to think if multiple positives happen on the same team, the spread is occurring in the facility, when it may just be that two guys independently got it, three guys independently got it, four guys independently got it, out in the community when they went home. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're all going through right now. I mean, anybody that's in your house, you've been exposed to everybody they've been exposed to, and that's kind of how this thing works. And yeah, that was part of the call today, Mike. You've talked a lot about the bubble, and, and I'll transcribe those quotes. It happened, the call happened right before we came on the air a little bit ago, but they don't want to do a bubble because they say putting people in a bubble for three, four, five months is a different kind of of health sort of risk because you're away from your family. They're of, over Thanksgiving and Christmas and all those holidays, and you're not getting to see your family. But if you truly want to play a full season, which they seem to be focused on, then that's the only way you can ensure that you're not going to have more games postponed because we are. And as Troy Vincent talked about, we're starting the bye weeks now. So you're going to be through with the bye weeks and you're going to have to add on a week at the end of the season if the bye weeks don't come out and switching games around because you, can, you aren't going to have any bye weeks. They're going to have served their bye weeks. We've already been through. Steelers have had one, we know. Uh, and and other teams have them this week. And so that's going to create even more problems because we are going to have more cases moving forward. Yeah, whether it's the de facto bye weeks that happened in order to accommodate moving games or the previously scheduled buys like the Lions and the Packers in week five, once those buys come and go, if any game involving a team who's already served its bye week needs to be postponed, unless you're going to have a team play two games in one week, which is never going to happen, You've got to add an 18th week. They just want to not acknowledge that as long as they can because they're concerned people are going to get complacent if they think they've got some buffer. They are concerned, obviously, that 18 becomes 19, and then 19 could become 20, and at what point do you start canceling games? But but here's the thing about the bubble, and I just wish that they would be candid. I'll say candid instead of truthful. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But look— there's a strategic component to this that relates to collective bargaining. You know, they talk about four months, five months. Right now, it's three and a half months at the, at the most for the teams that would make it to the Super Bowl. For the teams that just finish out the regular season, it's two and a half months. And the NFL doesn't want to have to go to the union and say, we would like you to tell your entire rank and file to live 24 hours a day around the clock in a team hotel and never go home and never see their families and be away from society for the remainder of the season because the NFLPA is going to say no. The NFL isn't interested in doing that, and in part because the NFL wants something in return, as it should. It's collective bargaining. The NFL would do the same damn thing. If anybody time, anytime the NFL asks or is asked for anything more than what it's already required to give, it says give us more in return. That's business. That's capitalism. That's how it works. And that's what's pinching the NFL right here. Because unless and until the union decides to say, hey, maybe this is a good idea that we all go live in a hotel for the rest of the year, the NFL is going to have to give them something to do it. And it's a shame that that reality could potentially set the stage for lost games because no one wants to make the first move. This is the junior high dance where all the boys are on one side of the room and all the girls are on the other and nobody's going to walk into the middle. It's exactly what's going on. And that's going to maybe result in games being lost for good and never made up. But uh, that may be what it takes before they go into a bubble. All right, now we'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming. The Jets reportedly trying to unload running back Le'Veon Bell. Look, I've been saying this for months. The moment the Jets aren't in contention, the moment they know that it's over, and by the way, it's over o'clock for the New York Jets, that's when you trade Le'Veon Bell. You've got to, because he's not going to be there next year. This is your opportunity to get value. And last year, he said it himself, Texans, Chiefs, Packers, Steelers, and one other team that I can't recall, 
were interested in trading for Le'Veon Bell. And ultimately, the reason the deal didn't happen, they wanted him to redo his contract, give up some of his guarantees for this year, and he didn't want to do it. Well, there's no guarantees for next year. Somebody would be renting him for the balance of this year, cut him after the season. He becomes a free agent. This is a deal he should want to do. He's going to get cut anyway. May as well go play for a contending team. I think it would be smart for somebody out there who thinks they need a running back. You have to otherwise have the offense in place. If you think you need a running back, if you're a running back away, this is your opportunity to get Le'Veon Bell, Shereen. Yeah, they have to have the cap room, Mike. We know that. What is it? He has $6 million left, I think, on his deal this year. I, you know, somebody should want him. Somebody, he can help some contending team. I don't know who that is right off the top of my head, but he certainly can help some team that is in need of a running back. And, and I think they will trade him somewhere, and I think they'll take what they can get, whether that's a player or whether that's a, a mid-round pick, something for him, anything for him is better than keeping him on your team, having him continually go on social media and complain. And his relationship, obviously, with Adam Gase is not a good one, despite when they say it is a good one. It's, it doesn't appear to be a good relationship. And he just wasn't a fit there. He was a bad signing from the start. So go get what you can get for him, cut your losses, and move on. Yeah, I agree with you completely. This is a guy that Mike McCagnin should not have signed. There were reports at the time that Adam Gase was opposed to it. He wasn't opposed to the concept of having Le'Veon Bell. He was opposed to paying $13.5 million per year for a running back that they didn't need. You build your offense from the inside out, not the outside in. You don't add a running back unless you have all the other pieces so you can get the most out of that running back, and clearly the Jets don't have the other pieces. And part of the problem here, and it's all coming to a head, Le'Veon Bell and Adam Gase just haven't been on the same page and probably because of the reporting that Adam Gase didn't want to pay Le'Veon Bell $13.5 million a year. But Bell did that passive-aggressive liking of tweets. You know, you're not retweeting it. You're not saying anything yourself. You're just pressing the little heart button on things like this. As much as I hate the idea the Jets should trade Le'Veon Bell. He pressed like on that. Like, Gase has had an issue with him since day one. He pressed like on that one. Le'Veon Bell, whom the Jets stressed the need to involve in the passing game this season, had one catch on one target for seven yards. They pressed like on that, did Le'Veon Bell. So Adam Gase made it clear, I hate that's the route that we go with all of this. Well, that's the route he goes, and you can't stop him from doing it. That's the last one there on the screen. You see that Le'Veon Bell pressed that little heart on if you are familiar with Twitter at all, meaning that he likes it. He agrees with it. There's something about it that caused him to press that button. Sometimes it happens accidentally. I have a feeling in this case (laughs) there were not three separate accidents that all related to the possibility that Le'Veon Bell is better off elsewhere, and I think he is. And the question is, can they get it done? And the sooner it happens, the better off everyone will be. The question is, what in the world can the Jets get for this guy at this point? Probably less than what they would have gotten a year ago, Shereen. Yeah, and you know, Mike, he hasn't even been a big part of their offense. I mean, I know he came back from from injured reserve, but they're just not using him like the Steelers used him. And again, I realize this is not the Steelers. This is the Jets. They don't have all the parts. I understand all that. But, you know, he had one target the other day. He is your best weapon or one of your best weapons. Robbie Anderson has been really good for them this year. But he's one of your best weapons, and you're not using him the way that you should use him. So at that point, you do cut your losses. Go get what you can get for him and start building with a different running back next year and thinking about next year um, because he's not going to help you next year either. I mean, you're not going to be a contending team next year. This is a a team that's totally and completely rebuilding, probably going to have a different head coach, if not also a different GM next year. So they need to start thinking about the future, and the future does not include Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, and next year the salary is $8 million with a $3.5 million reporting bonus, uh, actually $3 million reporting bonus, and then 500000 in per-game roster bonuses, and that's $11.5 million in total compensation next year for Le'Veon Bell, and that's not happening. The market just isn't there for running backs, especially one that, that hasn't been what he once was. And I don't know what teams would be interested in him this year. The trade deadline is three weeks from today. Now, I've seen that there's an urgency to trade him now because there's two and a half million that he's due on Thursday. And this one's always tricky because this is payment for a roster bonus that was vested on uh, back in March. March 31, four and a half million. He got two million then. The other two and a half million is due October 15. 
I, I mean, we've been down this road before, and I'm not quite sure how it works. I think the Jets may already be on the hook for that $2.5 million, whether they trade him or not. But the key deadline is three weeks from today. That's when the window closes. And all it takes is one torn ACL. Two, and I'm not going to name any of the top running backs. We know who they are. I don't want to jinx anybody. But all it takes is that one injury, and maybe somebody's interested in Le'Veon Bell. But, you know, the question is, how good is he right now? Do you want to take that chance? Do you want to pay him $6 million for the balance of the season when you're not quite sure where he is, Shereen? I think that's the thing that could keep a team from doing it. And that may require the Jets to pay part of the $6 million to unload him in order to avoid paying the full $6 million to keep around a guy that they just would rather not have. And I start thinking of the top contending teams, Mike, and they all have running backs at this point. So I do think it's going to take an injury before somebody steps up and says we're going to trade for Le'Veon Bell because we've got to replace our running back. Because you start thinking about all those contenders. I mean, Aaron Jones, I mean, you're going to replace him, trade for him. If you're the Packers, you have Le'Veon, you know, you have uh, Aaron Jones. You have a back that's better than him. Houston's not contending. They're not going to contend. They were in it last year, and they traded for David Johnson, so they're not in. You know, you just start naming all those teams, and I do think it's going to be an injury uh, before someone steps up and says, all right, Le'Veon Bell will help us get to the playoffs and maybe have a chance to go to the Super Bowl. The Chiefs were interested in Adrian Peterson. They, they just wanted to sign him after week one, and he wanted to land with a team as of week one. That's one of the reasons why he picked the Lions. I don't know that they would take on that contract. Again, the Jets may have to pay a chunk of it. And just so we're clear on the math, he's due $5.5 million over the balance of the season in salary. He does have a $500,000 annual per game roster bonus. That's another thirty-one two fifty for every game he plays in. And there's this issue of the $2.5 million that is due on Thursday. But again, I think the Jets are going to be cutting this guy a check if they find someone who would take Le'Veon Bell off their hands. And at this point, that could be a big if. All right. Uh, the Browns and the Steelers get together this week. And this is a rivalry that never seems like much of a rivalry because usually the Steelers are good and usually the Browns aren't. Well, this year, the Browns are the best team the Steelers have seen so far this season because the Steelers... Yeah, they, they beat the Giants, and that game at one point could have gone either way. They beat the Broncos. That game could have gone either way. They beat the Texans. That game could have gone either way. And the Eagles could have gone either way. Now come the Browns, who lost week one to the Ravens, won four in a row. And one of the, th- the fact that they're both good right now causes us to possibly overlook the Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph thing, the fact that Rudolph isn't playing also causes us to overlook it. But Miles Garrett, public enemy number one in Pittsburgh, there will be fans in the building, only 5,500. Mike Tomlin addressing the reunion between the Pittsburgh Steelers and Miles Garrett. Here's Tomlin. There's a lot on the table in reference to this game in terms of stakes. Um, they're a four-in-one team. We're trying to remain undefeated. Um, you know, we're not looking for that low-hanging fruit or that a reality TV storylines and so forth. Uh, this is a big game here in 2020. Yeah, you know, the problem is reality TV sells, and sometimes the low-hanging fruit tastes the best because it's the ripest. Um, But, uh, uh, look, it it would be different if it was a full stadium. It would be far different for Miles Garrett. And it would be different if the guy that he whacked over the head with his own helmet was actually playing in the game. So, And Miles Garrett's come a long way since then, and it really does feel like water well under the bridge and out to sea after everything we've dealt with since that night last year that feels like, 10 years ago, frankly. But, you know, it's part of the reality. It's part of the rivalry. And we can call it a rivalry now that both teams are vying for the opportunity to to challenge the Ravens for the top of the NFC North, Shereen, or AFC North. You know, I you know, I go along back a long way with Miles Garrett and think an awful lot of him. He grew up here in Arlington, went to high school here, and then obviously played for my alma mater at Texas A&M. And I know what a good kid he is at heart, and, and he is still a kid despite his size. And, and I'm glad that he's come a long way uh, in the past few months because I thought it was going to be a scarlet letter for him. And we talked a lot about – other teams and other players are going to try to incite him now that they know what he's capable of, and he, and he hasn't done any of that. He hasn't reacted because you know other players are saying things to him, and they're trying to get him to get a 15-yard penalty, and he hasn't done anything, and he's been awesome on the field. And I'm really happy for how far he's come, but he's second in the league with, with six sacks behind Aaron Donald and has three forced fumbles, which, which leads the league. He's become very good at that strip sack. 
and just been an outstanding player and a model citizen this year. So I, I'm thrilled with where he is, and I hope that this week goes as well as the rest of the season has for him because you you know this is not a game probably that he's looking forward to. And, you know, he said some things about Ben Roethlisberger when he first came into the, into the draft as the number one overall pick. He said he couldn't wait to sack Ben Roethlisberger. So they're, they're going to be gunning for him. They're going to say stuff. They're going to try to get that 15-yard penalty. He's got to keep, keep his cool one more time. We do have Tuesday Night Football coming up at 7 o'clock Eastern. The Bills at the Titans. No new positive cases for the Titans earlier today, which clears the path for the two teams to play. The Titans haven't played in 16 days. The Bills got a couple of extra days to get ready for the Titans. The Bills, against the run, weren't great when they played the Rams two weeks ago. Shireen, I feel like the Bills are the better team, even though the Titans are undefeated at 3-0. and The Titans have won their three games by a total of six points against teams that aren't great. I feel like the Bills should win this. I also feel like at a certain level the Titans are in disarray. But at the same time, to the extent the Titans are kind of mad at the world for everything that's gone on and all the criticism they've taken, Mike Vrabel could maybe push their buttons in a way that gets them lathered up and pissed off and ready to go out and take out their frustration on someone. We also don't know how many real players they're going to be out tonight, Mike, who, who they're going to have in that starting lineup. It seems like forever since the Titans have played. and It's been two weeks, a little over two weeks, but it just seems like forever. And, and I'm sure they feel like it's been forever. They haven't, you have to remember, they haven't practiced very much either, no, except for the off-site thing, which we won't talk about. But they haven't been at the practice facility practicing, lifting weights, getting ready. They've been mostly on Zoom call preparing. I agree with you. I think the Bills should win this game, and they should win it fairly handily. But Mike Vrabel is a good motivator. He's a good head coach, and he does have a chance to push that button and say, let's go show the world something. Aren't you excited to be playing today? We'll see how that goes. Again, it starts at 7 o'clock Eastern. When we return, we're going to rewind the clock to Sunday night. Vikings-Seahawks, Week 5 rewatch. Some of the things we saw upon closer review of the narrow and dramatic victory by the home team. We'll do that next right here on PFTPM. You know, I am completely over any and all Minnesota Vikings fandom, Shireen, because number one, I just don't care anymore. I've become completely ambivalent. They've done that to me over five decades. And number two, I hate to say it, I would rather be right than advance some outdated fan rooting interest i picked the seahawks to win and picked the vikings to cover and i wanted to thread that needle and i did so i was happy with the outcome you gotta like that mike uh, it's always better to be right than for your team to win no question well especially because i know that they're they're probably you know at one point in my early years i said i would just like the minnesota vikings to win one super bowl in my lifetime I have processed all of the various emotions I have gone through over the course of five decades, and maybe it was one phase for each decade, anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Now in my 50s, I have accepted the fact that I likely will die without the Vikings ever winning a Super Bowl, and it caused me to not care anymore. And it, it's like a weight off of my shoulders. You know, it's nothing I can control, so... I just go about my life and enjoy the rest of it, however many years are left. And if they win a Super Bowl, that's the thing. That's what will happen now. It's like Don Mattingly leaving the Yankees the year before they finally won a World Series or Tiki Barber retiring the year before the Giants won a Super Bowl. By the time the Vikings win a Super Bowl, I won't care anymore, and I truly won't care, and I won't be able to get it back. So anyway, I had to get it back and watch them play on Sunday night. Shireen selected the Vikings-Seahawks game for our rewatch let's start with the category that we always begin with best player on the field after further review shereen who did you select there's two obvious candidates mike and you know i think even if the vikings had won that game i really think we'd still be talking about these two players regardless of if they had had the 94 yard drive to win the game because Russell Wilson is playing better than anyone in the NFL right now. He's just been outstanding. As we know, that was his 34th uh, game winning drive in the fourth quarter overtime. He now has 19 touchdown passes in five games. Only Peyton Manning had more. So he's basically on pace to, to break Peyton Manning's record or at least tie it. Peyton Manning had 20 at this point 
through five games, and that's the NFL record through five games. He's 23-7-1 in night games, 14-2 and in one-possession games uh, since the start of last year. I mean, just everything you want he's done over the last two seasons and really playing at a high, high level right now. No one in the NFL I don't think is playing better than Russell Wilson is right now. Yeah, I agree with you. That would have been my pick, too. And the other guy I assume you're talking about is DK Metcalf, who is quickly becoming the proverbial man among boys. And he's been that way. He was kind of raw as a rookie, but he's really developed. He's come along. Some very glowing endorsements of Metcalf provided last week by Russell Wilson. And Metcalf told me after the week four win over Miami that he just sees the field differently. He understands the coverages. He's got confidence. I saw a quote that was attributed to him that basically, you know, everyone thinks he's this big intimidating force, so he's just going to go out and play like one. He's going to be that guy who just goes and gets the football and you better not get in his way. And he had that mentality on the game-winning touchdown catch of, I'm going to make the difference. I'm going to be the difference. I'm going to go catch that football and I'm going to win this game with win or lose hanging in the balance. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. And I'm going to be that guy. And what a weapon that gives Russell Wilson for presumably the balance of his time with Seattle, however long it may be. He says he wants to play until he's 45. These two guys could be joined at the hip for the duration of their careers because by the time Metcalf starts to fade, that'll be about the time that Russell Wilson is thinking about moving on. And that means a very special decade to come for the Seattle Seahawks if they can keep Wilson and Metcalf together. Um, A player after further review that looked better than it seemed on Sunday. I'm going to go first because we've lost Shireen. I'm going to go with... Oh, and Shireen's back, so I will defer to Shireen. Player (laughs) who was better on closer review than it initially appeared while watching it live on Sunday. Shireen, who do you have? Well, I'm going to go with Benson Mayoa, and he was here in Dallas for a while. In fact, he's floated around. I would call him probably a journeyman because I think he's played with with five teams. But he had five tackles, uh, including the the fourth down stop of Alexander Madison. He had a sack and a forced fumble on that final play against Kirk Cousins. Just every time you looked at him, he was somewhere making a play. And I think this is a really good sign for the Seahawks, who obviously have had trouble getting after the quarterback this entire season. That's been really their Achilles heel on defense. They're 32nd in defense, and the problem is they can't get to the quarterback. And he was able to do that uh, a little bit on Sunday. But, you know, he, he hasn't made many starts in his career, 20 starts, and five of those have come this season. And I think he's playing at a pretty high level. And you start to look at some of these players around the league, the Benson Mayoas and Kerry Hyders and Taco Charltons, the Cowboys could use those guys on defense right now. They're making plays elsewhere, and he's one of the guys making plays elsewhere. Yeah, the guy that I picked is Kirk Cousins, a guy who has typically not played well in prime time. He's been responsible for the Vikings not winning big games in big spots. And this was a great opportunity for the Vikings to win in Seattle with no fans there with the ability to operate the offense. And the thing that impressed me, Cousins' performance, once it all fell apart for the Vikings, they're up 13-0, and then boom, bam, pow, it's 21-13. And in past years, it would have become 35-13. It would have been done. It would have been over. And the fact that the Vikings drove down, scored a touchdown, made it 21-19, got the ball back, drove down, scored a touchdown, made it 26-21, got the ball again, and drove into position to ice the game. And on that last play, you know, I've blamed Kirk Cousins for many things that have not gone right for the Vikings offense over the past few years. What happened on that fateful play, the decision, the execution, none of it's his fault. So uh, he did everything he possibly could to help the Vikings win that game. It wasn't his fault that the defense failed. It wasn't his fault that the decision was made to go for it. It wasn't his fault that Alexander Madison failed to hit the hole. Cousins did everything he possibly could, and that's the silver lining in this for the Vikings, although it may not matter because they're 1-4, and and the chances of them turning it around and getting to the postseason at this point are slimmer and slimmer by the week, Shereen. My only problem with Kirk Cousins was the two turnovers he had in back-to-back plays, which gave Seattle the lead. You know, the first one was the fumble and then the interception that he threw, and and those were two bad plays. But you're right. In the past, I think this is a team that would have folded. They wouldn't have come back and taken the lead and, frankly, should have won the game uh, on fourth and one. So 
it, it, I thought he did seem as a different quarterback after the bad things happened to him, and he came back and gave him a chance to win the game. All right, let's move on to someone who had a night that they would like to forget. Shireen, I'll let you go first, and this one – this one, re- this one has to hurt you because I know how you feel about the individual who you are making the subject of your selection. I love Mike Zimmer, of course, and he was here in Dallas for a really long time, and he's one of my all-time favorites. But, you know, he's become more aggressive this year. So they were two for three on fourth down. And you look at that first drive. They had a fourth and two, right, from the Seattle 36. And uh, that was a pass to Jefferson. So they picked up the first down. Then they had a fourth and one yard line and Cook went for three. That was early in the second quarter. So let's fast forward to the end of the game. They have a chance to win the game. I'm not necessarily, I understand why he made the decision to go for it. I get it. Now I would have kicked the field goal and maybe he would in retrospect too. Although he keeps saying I would do the same thing all over again. My question to him would be, would you have picked a different play? It worked on the other two plays. You're giving it to a guy, Alexander Madison, who is not Dalvin Cook. So would you have picked a different play if you could go back and do it again? And I guarantee you his answer would be yes. Here's Mike Zimmer talking about the decision to go for it on fourth down. And as you said, he will double down on that fateful decision. Here he is. You've got to make decisions quick, and you don't have time to – ask uh you know analytics guys what what to do it's you know i'm in that situation i'm always going for the win i don't care and uh we've done that many times and we'll continue to do it that's just we had a half a yard to go we've we've been running the ball really really well i felt like their defense was tired and um you know we hit two other fourth downs earlier in the ball game so i'll do it again next time it comes up if you got a chance to win the game you got to go for it And, you know, there are coaches who do have that analytics guy in their ear, and it's part of the consultation in which they engage in making decisions like that. My son, who has picked up the Vikings virus from me and was very pissed off about the outcome of the game, asked me beforehand, what should they do? And frankly, I was torn because it was raining so hard you could see it. We talked about that yesterday. When it's coming down like that, you don't know what's going to happen. They could miss that field goal. But you know what? You missed the field goal. You're in the same spot as if you don't make it. And really that what set that up was the running play on third down by Adam Thielen. The hit that was made to keep – and he got blown up. The, the, they hit yeah. at the last instant that kept him from getting the first down, set the stage for that fourth down. So, yeah, look, Mike Zimmer has to say – something that projects faith in his guys because he's going to need them to perform again and they need to know that he has confidence in them even if maybe he shouldn't have for me it's alexander madison for reasons we've discussed on pft live we discussed it yesterday on pftpm but you know even though he had over 110 yards rushing uh both complimenting dalvin cook and then in relief of cook after cook was injured that uh, that inability to see the gaping hole, the 18 feet, not inches of daylight, that that gigantic arrow, right? The, the kind of thing they would use on a runway for a plane to land. That That is amazing to me that he didn't bounce it outside. There was nobody there. And that's something that is going to haunt Madison and Zimmer and all the Vikings players and their fans for the rest of the season. Because, you know, if they do turn it around a little bit and if they come up short by one game, and, and I know that it's impossible to say, well, we just flip one loss to a win and it all would be the same. Because, no, no, that's not the way it works. But still, if they miss the playoffs by a game, that moment is going to be the reason why in the minds of a lot of people, Shereen. And Dalvin Cook would have found that hole. I guarantee you the league's leading rusher would have hit that hole. They would have had the first game, first down, and the game would have been over at that point. But alas, Dalvin Cook wasn't in the game, which I go back to pick another play. So Gary Kubiak and, and Mike Zimmer needed to pick a different play there, I think, to get the first down, and they didn't do it. And so the Seattle Seahawks went 94 yards and won that game. All right, last topic for the rewatch, the play to take a closer look at. Shereen, what was your selection? Well, I'm going to go to the one with 24 seconds left. And to me, it looked like DK Metcalf caught the touchdown pass before Mike Hughes knocked the ball out. And I was amazed that they didn't review that. And I don't think that this was a really good game for the officials because they, they really got off the hook because two plays later, 
obviously DK Metcalf ended up scoring anyway on fourth down. They got off on the hook earlier in the game because they blew the call on the fumble, the Kirk Cousins fumble that may or may not have been picked up and run back to the end zone. Seattle ends up scoring a touchdown anyway, so that became a moot point. But they just had these various plays that they didn't – they weren't good on. And then the last play of the game, I swear Kirk Cousins' arm was going forward before he fumbled. Well, they called it a fumble, but I thought his arm was coming forward with the football, which would have given Minnesota another play. Now, yes, they're probably not going to score from there, but I'm sure they would have liked to have had one more play. So I just didn't think this was a real real good game for the officials. I thought they blew some calls. And not having a replay there I thought was egregious. And if the Seahawks had ultimately lost the game, that's all we would have been talking about because both feet were down in the end zone, the ball was in possession, and then it came out. Now, I'm told that they did review it. You know how they do the preliminary review, and then they decide whether or not it requires the full-blown review. And I was told a long time ago that, that the decision that's made on that preliminary review, because the ultimate standard is it used to be indisputable visual evidence that the ruling on the field was incorrect. And the standard for activating the full-blown review was the reverse of that. If there was indisputable visual evidence that the call was correct, that's when you didn't initiate the process of a full review. So I guess that the standard would be, if it's clear and obvious the ruling was correct, you don't do the full review. And I don't think we could say it's clear and obvious. Now, you know, there continues to be a sense in league circles of a distinction between making a catch in the open field and making a catch in the end zone. Because in the open field, you know what the rule is now, three feet and or that sufficient opportunity to make a football move. Well, there's no need to make a football move when you're in the end zone. Two feet down and possession, some believe, and I'm not talking about fans, I'm talking about coaches, believe that that's a touchdown. And at a minimum, they believe it should have been reviewed. And I think that's the key. What does it hurt at that point? There's no next game that they need to get to. The game itself moved quickly. It's not like it was after midnight in the East and they needed to let everybody get to bed. They could have taken the extra few minutes to make sure they get it right, especially because, look, we saw what happened in the aftermath of the replay review of the touchdown that wasn't in the Texans-Vikings game. If that is upheld by replay review, maybe Bill O'Brien doesn't get fired. So there's a lot riding on the outcomes of these calls. Why not take the time? Just so you can say you did it. Take the time and do it because to the extent that the NFL is concerned about people having confidence in the process, that gives you confidence in the process if you take the time to do it, Shereen. And the clock will stop, Mike. That's the other thing. Not going to have a 10-second runoff. None of that. There was no reason not to look at that play further because the, the clock was stopped. The play for me, and we've already discussed it, I'm just going to mention it briefly, that K.J. Wright interception, that's Spider-Man stuff, and that's Spider-Man right. gloves stuff. And Rodney Harrison texted me right after it happened, gloves, K.J. Wright. Because we, we, we used to joke about that a lot when he was on the afternoon show that we used to do on NBCSN, that, that the gloves are incredible. The gloves are so good, at one point the competition committee was looking at ways to make the gloves not so good. And if you've ever seen the current NFL gloves or had an opportunity to try to catch a football, you see why a guy can put a hand up and the ball just sticks to it it's like velcro on cloth and uh that kj Wright interception is an example of what can happen even when they're wet sometimes they're even stickier when they're wet and it was a hell of a play by kj Wright. look you still have to put yourself in position to make the play and you still have to come down with the ball but what he did was impressive and that was the same play where dalvin cook inexplicably was back on the field and it was obvious from his body language he should never have been put back in a position where he was expected to accelerate because you could tell he's done that's it end of night and who knows how long he's going to miss all right you'll miss us for about i don't know how long it is a minute 90 seconds the breaks go so quickly on the other side mds joins us for the week five pftpm awards we'll do that right after this All right, long way to go and short time to get there. MDS, Shereen Williams, and I with the awards for Week 5. We're going to get right to it with the Offensive Player of the Week. Hello, MDS. You're on the clock. Well, I'm going to go with Deshaun Watson. He threw for 359 yards, which was a season high. 
He threw for three touchdowns, which is a season high. And I'll tell you one other thing I liked. He only ran the ball twice, but it was for 14 yards once and 11 yards the other time. He's only running when he needs to, and he's got a good opening to gain some yardage. He's not feeling forced to do it. And I felt like he looked more confident, more like himself than he had looked so far this season. And I'm I'm not saying that that was all Bill O'Brien's fault, but it was nice to see with the new head coach, Romeo Cornell, and some other changes there in Houston, Deshaun Watson playing the way we know Deshaun Watson is capable of playing. Yeah, you know, with that money that he got. Go ahead, Shereen. Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say with that money he got before the start of it. Here we go. (laughs) No, you go. No, I go. As Peter King and I said last week, if only our political debates involved people who were this polite. You go ahead, Shereen. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Uh, My choice is Derek Carr with apologies to Russell Wilson, only because we just spent a segment on Russell Wilson. But Derek Carr outplayed Patrick Mahomes. And if they get Derek Carr to play that way for the rest of the season, this is going to be a team to contend with. And, Mike, I know this is a team that you really like from the start, that you thought they might be able to maybe not overtake the Chiefs, but at least get to the playoffs and and make some noise. And they've done that. And I think Henry Ruggs has been a big difference for Derek Carr in, in what he's done. But he was just outstanding, and I think that's the way we all expected him to play. Yeah, I agree with you. And it all depended upon Derek Carr this season, and he's cutting it loose and throwing the ball down the field, which is a good thing to see. I got to go with Alex Smith. Even though Washington didn't win, even though he was constantly harassed, the fact that he's back completing one of the great comeback stories of all time in any sport, not just the National Football League, when you consider the injury that he suffered and all of the surgeries and the infection, and he almost lost his lower leg, and he almost died from the infection. That's how bad it was. And he had an external fixator because they couldn't put hardware inside of the of the, the bone and the body because of the infection. It's just amazing that he's back on the field, and it's a great story. And I guess he told Dan Patrick earlier today that he did not tack, uh, text Dak Prescott after Prescott suffered a similar injury because he didn't want to freak Dak out. Because the last guy you want to talk to about recovery from that kind of injury is the guy who went through hell and somehow came out on the other side uh, almost in as good a shape as he was before it happened. All right, Defensive Player of the Week time. MDS, who do you have? I've got Khalil Mack. It feels like forever ago, but it was, in fact, this week, the week that we're speaking of, that he had... Two sacks of Tom Brady, two other tackles for loss, hit Tom Brady as he was passing three times, and really I felt was the best player on the field in that back-and-forth Thursday night game that the Bears managed to end up on top in. And uh, I, I really think Khalil Mack, we might almost be underrating what an impact player he is. He does so much for that Bears defense that uh, he really has made an enormous impact. Obviously, when we talk about the Bears, we talk about the quarterback situation so much that I sometimes think we forget about the rest of the team. But man, he was really good on Thursday night and and just a huge reason that the Bears are, I think, a better team than we were expecting them to be. MDS, speaking of really good, I mean, I know we can pick this guy every single week, but Aaron Donald with the four sacks was just incredible. Troy Reader also deserves probably a little bit of an asterisk. He had three sacks. They had eight as a team, but he was just unstoppable, and and he leads the league now. Um, he, you know, after the four-sack good day, he leads the league in sacks, and I don't think anybody's surprised because he is the best defensive player on the planet. All right, I'm picking a rookie as my defensive player of the week. He won't be the rookie of the week, Patrick Queen. How about six tackles, a sack, two fumbles recovered, and also one that was taken back for a touchdown. He stares down his former teammate Joe Burrow, and the Ravens win big time. Rookie of the week, we're up against it. Let's roll, MDS. Who do you have? I've got Henry Ruggs. He only caught two passes, but one was for 72 yards and the other was for 46 yards. The Raiders drafted him because they want big plays. He gave them big plays. I'm going to go with the obvious choice, and that's Chase Claypool. Had not one, not two, not three, but four touchdowns and had another one called back. He was amazing. 
Yeah, and he told me that maybe uh, at some point down the road he'll match Gale Sayers with six. The way he played Sunday, that could happen someday. C.D. Lamb is mine, Shereen. I'm surprised you didn't go with C.D. Lamb. That just shows you what a great day Chase Claypool had. C.D. Lamb had a career day so far in receptions and yardage, and he's had a great season so far. He's doing the kinds of things that only Randy Moss and Anquan uh, Bolden have done in the past. All right, Coach of the Week time, MDS, who do you have? I have Mike Tomlin because I believe the most important element of coaching this season is going to be reacting and adjusting to unexpected circumstances. The Steelers got an unexpected bye week. They didn't come out of it looking rusty. They didn't come out of it looking like they were focused on the wrong things. I thought they played very well against the Eagles. I thought they looked focused, prepared, and I give Tomlin a lot of credit for that. I'm going to go with Brian Flores. I don't think anybody surprised the Dolphins won that game, but 43-17, that was a surprise. He stuck with Ryan Fitzpatrick over Tua, and, and they're winning games, and I think he's changing the culture there. Yeah, I wonder whether or not that counts as revenge for Super Bowl 19. It sure felt like the Dolphins were settling a very old score on Sunday in Santa Clara. I've got John Gruden. i got to give him credit because it wasn't just – the offensive approach, you've got to be ready to score. you got to go for it on fourth down. you got to get touchdowns, not field goals like they did early in the game. But he empowered Paul Gunther to come up with a defensive plan that worked. You're not going to shut down Patrick Mahomes, but if you can slow him down just enough so you outscore him, that's all that matters. All right, real quickly, who wins tonight? Bills or Titans? MDS, who you got? I got the Bills. Shereen? Same. I got the Bills. I'm reluctantly picking the Bills, although I do think there's a chance the Titans are sufficiently pissed off at the world that they're going to take it out on the Buffalo Bills, but we're going to find out. First time for Tuesday Night Football since December 28, 2010, when a blizzard forced the Vikings and Eagles to delay two days. We were there, and it was Joe Webb beating Mike Vick. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Have a great day. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.